Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? This is the word of the Lord. Epidemio is a very strong word in Greek. We know that Jesus didn't speak Greek, but Mark uses the word to describe several different events in the life of Jesus. Most of the people who heard Mark's gospel were not reading it for themselves. In rural areas, scholars say that maybe only 3% of the people could read or write in Jesus' time. They were hearing the gospel read to them. So, as the rabbi pointed out to you, when they would hear a word repeated, it would make special sense to them. Epitomio, you remember that word? We had it just three weeks ago. Jesus had just called his first disciples, had immediately then gone into the, to the synagogue at Capernaum, where those first disciples lived. He was teaching them as one who had great authority, when suddenly a man said, I know who you are. Have you come to destroy us, you holy one of God? And Jesus Epidemio rebuked the unclean spirit that was in him and said, Be quiet. Come out of him. Here in this passage, it is Simon Peter who epidemio Jesus. This would have been unthinkable in the first century of the common era that a student would epidemio a teacher, a professor, a rabbi? What is Peter so exercised about here? Well, Jesus has just asked them, Who do the people think I am? I had a fellow say, You're John the Baptizer, come back from the dead. Really? I heard somebody say, You're Elijah, the one coming just before Messiah. Really? I heard a fellow say the other day, you're a great prophet. Really? Who do you think I am? And Simon had just said, you are the Messiah of God. And Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed. The elephant in that room is... There was nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures about a dead Messiah. Nothing. When Messiah comes, the Romans will be chased out of our land. When Messiah comes, every hungry person will have enough to eat. Every shelterless person will have a place to sleep. Shalom will come to all of God's creation when Messiah comes. 
But Jesus rebuked him. Jesus epitomio straight back to Simon. In James, in Eugene Peterson's translation, he says, Simon, be quiet. You have no idea what the ways of God really are. So what are the ways of God? Let's take a look at this passage. Number one, this business about the Messiah, suffering, dying, being killed, murdered, if you would. Just three weeks ago, at Minister's Week at our School of Theology, SMU in Dallas, all the speakers had been invited to speak on various things related to the 200th birthday of Darwin. You realize Darwin, Charles Darwin, was born on the same day, same month, same year as Abraham Lincoln. Both of them coming up on this 200th birthday. So a lot has been written about both of them during that time. And lots of questions raised by lay people about Charles Darwin and his relationship to Christianity and so on. Professors had been brought in to talk about that. And one of them is a fellow named Dr. John Hott. Dr. Hott is a professor at Georgetown University in the Washington, D.C. area. And he came to speak on this subject about humankind and the creation of the universe. How that all came to be. And he said, you have to remember that as best we know right now, the universe as we know it began maybe a little less than 14 billion years ago. They used to say 17 and 16 and 15. Now they're down 14 billion or so. He said, but let me put that in perspective for you. Suppose we had a history of everything that took place from that big explosion that sent all these bodies screaming out into space and today. Let's just say that there were 30 volumes in this history and every volume had exactly 450 pages. That's 13,500 if you multiply it out. 13,500 pages. Dinosaurs do not disappear until the last 65 pages and human beings arrive on the last page. 13,500 pages and you and I arrive on the last page. I mean the first of our kind on the last page. And what a mess we've made of things. Here we are still hunting each other with pointed sticks, killing each other, murdering each other, stealing from each other sleeping with each other's married partners and so on. Isn't it amazing what we're doing to each other? Still! If you missed last Sunday night, Rabbi Zimmerman's presentation, you missed something really special, I thought. He began by saying that the first question in the Bible asked by human beings of God is, Am I my brother's keeper? Cain, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? And the rabbi said he believes the whole scroll of Genesis is an attempt to answer that question. And he believes it got answered with three pairs of brothers. The one after Cain and Abel next would be the sons of Abraham. He reminded us again and again in the three days he was with us that Jews before Abraham and Sarah were not Jews. They were just people. They were people. Jews began with Abraham and Sarah. God promised them a son, even though they were so very old. Dr. Tankersley read a part of that account for you from Paul's writing as to how Jews remembered that story. 
Old men, old women have tried all their married lives to have baby without success. And God says to them, I'm going to give you a son. You're going to found a new people. My people, Israel. The baby doesn't come nearly as quickly as they want him to. Finally, Sarah says, I don't think this is going to happen. Take my handmaid, father a child. He does. They name him Ishmael. Years pass. Most scholars believe Ishmael was at least a teenager when finally Sarah conceived and Isaac was born. Sarah grew jealous. She chased Hagar and Ishmael away into the desert. You remember? The rabbi then took us to that experience where Abraham took Isaac up the mountain, Mount Moriah, willing to offer him up, if that's what God really wanted of him, then seeing a ram caught in the brush, taking the ram instead. But the rabbi pointed out that when Abraham returned to the servants, nothing is said of Isaac. Nothing. Was Isaac with his father? Not. Rabbi Zimmerman thinks not. He didn't go home with that crazy old man. But neither did he rush home to his mother. Why didn't she protect him? If she had any knowledge of this whatsoever, why didn't Sarah protect this child of hers? The rabbi thinks he ran to his older brother Ishmael. The next time they are mentioned, they're both living in the same place. And when Abraham died, they, the sons, came to bury their father. He said, Reconciliation. And the agent of that reconciliation was the rejected son, Ishmael. Next pair of brothers, twins, Esau, Jacob. Remember the story. You know how Jacob was favored by the mother, Esau by the father, the strife that that caused in the family, how the mother helped Jacob betray an aging, virtually blind father. When Esau realized exactly what had happened, that the birthright that should have been his had been given away, he said, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Jacob fled. He was gone for 20 years, got married twice, Leah, then Rachel, two handmaids, keeps fathering sons, 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 finally after 20 years starts home. Word comes to him, guess who's riding up the Jordan River? Your brother Esau with 400 men. Jacob was frightened to death when finally Esau came into view. Which brother ran to the other, threw himself on his neck and kissed his brother Esau, the rejected one, became the agent of reconciliation. Next set of brothers, Jacob kept producing all these sons, all these sons. But he talked about only one wife, Rachel, the one he loved best. Best of all the three, the, the four, three others who fathered, uh, mothered sons for him. All these other sons. When Rachel died giving birth to the second one, she conceived, Joseph and then Benjamin. When Benjamin was being born, Rachel died. And Jacob moaned about, my wife died, my wife died. What about Leah? She's still living. What about the sons of Leah, whose mother was being completely dismissed as being wife at all? And yet when Joseph has ended up in Egypt, the famine comes. Folks from Canaan need food. They go south. Eventually... Joseph, not recognized by his brothers, he's changed so much living among the Egyptians, growing from being a boy into a man. Not recognized, he recognizes them. He demands that they bring the younger brother. The father won't let him go. Guess who offers himself? Put me in prison or kill me if I do not come home with my brother Benjamin. It was Judah, one of Leah's sons. It was rejected son who became the agent of reconciliation.
The rabbi said all of the scroll of Genesis about three rejected sons who became the agents of reconciliation. He's, I said the benediction, we went to get a cookie. But there's more. There's more. A thousand years later, a thousand years later, when the Babylonians have taken away the best and the brightest to Babylon, Deutero-Isaiah, that second portion of the work, a different prophet in exile wrote that the whole people of Israel are the suffering servant. We are the rejected people who must not become Babylonians. We must remain Israelites. We must be true to our covenant with Almighty God. And we in our sufferings will become the reconciling agent for the world. 600 years later, the gospel writers would see what happened to Jesus and would write the very stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He must suffer many things and be killed. He will become the agent of reconciliation for all who follow after him. Okay. All right, number two. Second important part. <clears throat> if anyone wants to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, come with me. Dr. Tankers and I make most of the hospital calls, he more than I. Wednesdays, every Wednesday. And I hear people say sometimes, oh, it's this old arthritic shoulder of mine. It's just my cross to bear. These old knees are wearing out, just my cross to bear. I'm gradually losing my mind, it's just my cross to bear. Burdens, not crosses. Crosses are those things which we take on to ourselves. The cares, the concerns, the hurts, the pains of others. That putting ourselves out for the well-being of another. I don't know if you're reading your United Methodist Reporter cover to cover, but they've had so many good articles recently about what we United Methodists are doing in Haiti. It's been a month now since that horrible earthquake. Um, six weeks, actually, January 12th. It's been about six weeks now. And what the Methodists are still doing there. There was one big article, about three pages long, and I spotted a photograph of somebody I knew. Melissa Crutchfield. I've known her since she was a little girl. Her father, Charles, was president of the student body when I arrived at SMU. He's really the same age I am. It took him four years to get through undergraduate school. I did mine in three. So when I got to graduate school at SMU, he was a senior in undergraduate school. And he and his father, Bishop Finus Crutchfield, only father-son ever to be president of the student body at SMU. Years apart, but both president of the student body. Then Charles went on to Duke Divinity School after graduating SMU. I stayed there at Perkins. It was some years later that he was now a young pastor out of New Mexico and invited me to come and preach in his church. I met Karen, his wife. I met their two children, little fellows, Scott Melissa. I was around the Crutchfields different times. I saw Scott and Melissa grow. 
Scott, graduated Duke, brilliant young man, got married, was recruited by one of the high-tech companies that have set up a Silicon Valley near Austin, Texas, was discovered to have a brain tumor. Little more than a year after he died. One child left, Melissa. She graduated Duke as well. Now her grandfather, Finus Crutchfield, was pastor here 12 years. He elected a bishop, served with distinction in Louisiana, with distinction eight more years in Texas annual conference. Her father moved up through the chairs in New Mexico, finally pastor of the biggest Methodist church in Albuquerque. I was elected to lead the Oklahoma delegation six years ago. We interviewed all the candidates for bishop. We needed to elect four. We Oklahomans decided on the four we thought were the best of the whole lot. We worked hard to get them elected. We were successful. The four we chose were the four finally elected. One of them, our bishop, Robert Hayes. One of them, Charles Crutchfield. So Melissa's grandfather a bishop, her father a bishop. She's a graduate of Duke. She could get a job most anywhere doing almost anything. She works for the United Methodist Committee on Relief. She goes to all the trouble spots in the world where your dollars make it possible. There she was, taking notes, signing jobs to volunteers. You take this bag of 55 pounds of dried beans and divide them into five-day rations for this community. You take that bag of rice, 50 pounds, divide it into five-day rations for as many families as you can. You distribute water. You set up shelters. You make a shower for these people. You help create bathrooms for them. That's what Melissa's doing. In all these trouble spots in the world, she's there. Because she decided all these people are somehow the cross she needs to take onto herself, denying herself to do something really good for others. Number three, if you're trying really hard to save your life, you lose it. I've been enjoying the Winter Olympics, uh, Sunday night, Monday night. Tuesday night, of course, I didn't get home till almost 10 o'clock, so I just heard saw the last little bit. But I got to see the head, headlines, the best of the day. And other nights, I've, I've been enjoying it very much. But some of the interesting stories have been about people who are not at the Olympics. Did you see the story about Kirsten Holum? Twelve years ago, Kirsten was sixth in the 2,000-meter speed skating event, but she was only 17. Now, speed skaters, uh, opposite those who do all the fancy dancing and so on, speed skaters often get better and better. As they move on into their 20s, even late 20s, early 30s, often continue to get better for some time. So people could just see that Kirsten, when she was 21, when she was 25, when she was 29, what a great star she would be. She certainly had the genes. Her mother was a gold medal winner in 1972 at the Olympics. She could have had the best trainers in the world. In fact, her mother became coach and mentor of Eric Haydn, who would win the medals in 1980. But Kirsten went on a trip with others to Portugal, and one of their stops was Fatima. We've been to Fatima, a place where some little girls 
said they saw the Holy Mother. They rushed home to tell their parents they'd seen the Holy Mother, that Mary had appeared to them. People who came to the springs at Fatima, where these little girls said they saw the Holy Mother, said they were healed. When you go to Fatima now, there's a huge expanse of crutches and back braces, leg braces of people who say they were healed at Fatima. And Kirsten heard the voice of God in her heart. She pledged herself to become a nun in the Roman Catholic Church to the Franciscans. When all of her schooling was done, she was assigned to one of the toughest neighborhoods in New York City. She served with great distinction. They sent her to Leeds in England. Somebody found her. Twelve years after she was in the Olympics. Was she keeping up with the Olympics? Well, best you could, she said. But at the convent here, we have no television. We have no internet. Really. Wouldn't you love to be in Vancouver, she was asked. No, she said, I'd rather be in Leeds right now. Are you sorry? Did you make the wrong decision? She said, I don't think so. I have no regrets. No regrets. If you're trying hard to save, you may lose. If you're willing to lose, you will save by the grace of God. Your life will be saved. This word that's translated life here for you and me was translated soul in the old King James Version. What does it profit a person if he or she gain the whole world and lose his or her soul? The word is really psyche. Psyche, from which we get psychology, psychiatry. Whatever that is that those persons are trying to help heal. What is that? Is it the mind, the spirit, the heart? What? Huh? That's what the word is. But Jesus didn't speak Greek, of course. He didn't. So what was the word Jesus would have used? Nefesh. Nefesh. I know what my professor told me that word means, but I asked Rabbi Zimmerman this week, without telling him what my professor had said, what does the word nefesh mean to you? Well, he said, that's the word right there in the creation story in Genesis. I said, I remember God took a deep breath, and from his ruach blew that breath into humans and they became living beings. Sometimes we translate soul, he said. I said, yes, but Dr. Bill Power, whom he knew in Dallas while he was rabbi down there, I said, Bill Power said, the root is open mouth like a baby bird, a bundle of appetite. Yeah, he said, that's it, that's it. So what if you're trying to save it and you lose it? What if you're willing to lose it and it gets saved? Dr. Fred Craddock said, here in the United States of America, we don't usually face these big, big decisions of faith. We all imagine that if we were ever asked to just come forward and put it all on the table, a thousand dollar bill, we'd do it. But in fact, in the United States, we're asked to change that thousand dollar bill into four thousand quarters and do small acts of kindness again and again and again and that you've never really lived until you've done something for somebody who could never ever repay you. Amen.